morning. As I was praying about what to share this morning, as, uh, as Rob has mentioned, as we continue in the book of Hebrews, I kept reading our passage, which we're going to read in a moment, and asking God to lead me, and I couldn't escape this idea of identity. Identity, knowing who we are. Now, for my previous job, identity was very important. Uh, I previously worked as a security officer at Newcastle Airport, and as security, you were in charge of allowing people access based on their identity. At the entrance of security, as I'm sure you know, you could only uh, access if you had a valid boarding pass or if you had uh, the relevant um, identification which allowed you to access the search area, so people like the police officers or, or the NCA and so on. And often, however, to keep us security officers sharp, uh, in our work, testers would be sent. Testers would be sent in with counterfeit or fake identification, which we, of course, would have to spot. And on one occasion, when I was at the entrance to security, uh, and I was just letting the passengers through, checking boarding passes and so on, there was a woman who came to the desk. And she just simply asked, oh, I'd just like to enter. And she, she explained who she was, and it was all a very plausible story. Uh, and then handed me your identification. And as I examined it, it's just something just ringing in the back, going, there's something not right here. And uh, I asked her a couple more questions, and she was, she was fairly cool. She was fairly, fairly a solid actress, I would have said. And then uh, I noticed, <coughs> as I looked at her past, there's just something about it wasn't right. And then I looked at her photograph, and it looked like her a little bit, but not completely. Just a little bit off. And alarm bells just started ringing. And I just kept asking a couple more questions. And she still kind of wouldn't, she wouldn't give anything away. And so I followed protocol and I radioed my supervisor to come and, and, and inspect. And it turned out she was a tester. And uh, she'd, uh, she did say to me afterwards, you did very well. She'd ask me all these different questions. And even when my supervisor was arriving, I played with her a little bit. And I said, so where are you off to today? Where are you traveling to? <laughs> and she looked at me going, yeah, you know, you know, you know. <laughs> but it was nice. Identity is a really crucial and is a powerful thing. And the tester, in my, in my experience, was acting as, as one, she had one identity, but the reality was she was someone different. And as Christians, understanding our identity, or our new identity in Christ, understanding who we are as followers of Jesus is crucial to growth in our faith. Because so often, I feel, and this is me speaking from experience, we so often forget who we are. And our thoughts and our words and our actions quite often display this. And our passage this morning is going to bring out a number of aspects of our identity which I want us to focus on. So let's read our section together. It's, it's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18, and uh, there'll be two slides, Paul. Uh, and the words will be up uh, on the screen there. And I'm going to start the reading from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, just to give us a bit of context. So Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then this is our passage this morning. 
in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. But surely it is not angels he helped, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that's our passage this morning. As Rob mentioned, we've recently begun this, this series in the New Testament book of Hebrews, and, and we've arrived today at this section that we, we've just read, chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. But to help us, I thought it may be beneficial just to recap a little uh, on the book of Hebrews. So, so Hebrews, as a book, contains two critical ideas. Two critical themes or, or two critical purposes that the writer wants to get across to us uh, as the listeners or the readers of this book. And first thing we need to remember, these, these Christians were from a Jewish background and that will be helpful for us to remember a little later on. But the first theme is this, Jesus is supreme. No matter what angle you look at him or his work, in everything Jesus is and Jesus does, it is supreme. He is greater than anything that typical religious positions or worldviews or ideologies can offer. And he offers and delivers more than anything humanity seeks to provide through its own knowledge or through its own activity, its own resources or its own power. Jesus, and, uh, Jesus offers and delivers the three things that each human being desires. Those three things are complete security, complete significance, and complete acceptance. And Jesus is supreme in offering and delivering all of those things. That's the first theme of Hebrews. And then the second one, because of that first theme, that Jesus is supreme, we are encouraged as followers of Jesus to persevere, to keep following, to keep going in the midst of hardships, in the midst of uh, difficulties, of persecutions, or temptations to walk away. We're to keep going. That is the writer's goal in the book of Hebrews, to keep us running. These are the two purposes. Now, our section touches on both of these purposes, as well as a whole host of others, and, and, and I'm going to have to, oh, but by no means we'll cover everything this morning in our passage, okay? I'm going to say that at the outset. By no means will I cover everything in this passage that the passage presents to us. But I want us to look at three threads that run through our passage, and all of which concern identity. They concern Jesus' identity. And after each thread, I want us to reflect on what it means for our own identity, for our own understanding of who we are. It's the most fundamental question, who you are. These are the three threads of our passage. We see that Jesus is our liberator. We see, secondly, that Jesus 
is our brother. And we see finally that Jesus is our sinless and sympathetic high priest. He is our liberator, he is our brother, and he is our sinless and sympathetic high priest. These are the three main points concerning Jesus' identity in this passage. And all of them have repercussions for understanding our own identity as well. So firstly then, Jesus is a liberator. Specifically, our passage says that Jesus can liberate people, including us, from sin, from death, and from Satan himself. In verse 10, we read that Jesus is called the pioneer of salvation or the founder of salvation. Salvation means the deliverance from danger or suffering. And when the Bible speaks of salvation, it talks about it in the sense of spiritual deliverance. Specifically, salvation in the Bible largely refers to what our eternal destiny is, where we will be when our life on planet Earth ceases. Will we be with God or apart from God, in light or in darkness? That is what salvation is about. And salvation or being saved is something that this passage states Jesus has won for us. That word pioneer can also be translated champion. Jesus somehow won for us salvation or the possibility of the reality of being saved. He won that for us. Now, salvation and being saved is something that, as Christians, we talk about a lot. We don't want to pretend that we all understand what that means. So, so be saved from what? Well, what has been revealed to us in the Scripture is that one day the wrath or the judgment of God will occur to punish sin. And sin is the stuff we do which rejects God and his ways. We were created in God's image. That is the idea of the scripture. We were created in God's image. And we as human beings are to reflect God in the world. That is our goal. That is our purpose. In everything we do, we are to reflect God. We are his image bearers. We were created in his image. And sin is everything we think and say and do that does not reflect God that does not reflect God our creator. Or it's the things that we think, say, and do that we were not created to think, say, and do. For each of us, we can recognize that there is a darkness inside of us. There is an ability and a desire to be better than others around us, to be selfish or to be cruel or to be prideful or hateful, to use words and actions to occasionally hurt others. But it's not just moral questions that sin covers because sin also speaks of engaging in activities which we do in order to find fulfillment. When we're trying to find fulfillment outside of God, activities and desires that can seemingly promise satisfaction, seemingly promise fulfillment, but ultimately lead to addiction, lead to disappointment, and lead to shame. They all fall short. Sin is the, the idea that, that we pursue things that we think will lead to security or acceptance or significance, like money or sex or power, but because by them we think we will be contented and satisfied. Rather than looking to the one who can and does offer those things completely. Satisfaction, security, and acceptance. He offers them completely, and that's God himself. It's not wrong to want those things. Those are three things that as human beings, every, every human being is wired to have and desire. The problem is that we often look in the wrong places. When we have a creator God who offers us all those things. 
And this darkness and this brokenness that each of us, if we're humble enough to admit, stops us from living the life that God intended us to live, that God created us for. And it also then blocks us from pursuing a relationship with him because our sin and our darkness needs dealing with. Humanity brought sin into this world through its rejection of God. That's the idea in the book of Genesis in the first couple of chapters. And we don't have the power, we don't have the capability to remove the darkness we have. We are in what the Bible calls we're in slavery to sin. We, we need a liberator. We need a savior. We need to be saved from the consequences of our sin, which is the righteous and the good judgment and fair justice of God. This judgment is to result in our separation from God from eternity. That is the judgment for sin. But in passionate love for his creation, in passionate love for you, you individually, and us as a corporate community this morning, out of passionate love for you, God promised that he would send someone to come. God could easily have abandoned us, could easily have destroyed us, wrapped up the earth as a scroll, and left. But in grace and in love and in mercy, God sent someone to save. And through all of the events of the Old Testament, we see glimpses of, of this person. But what we don't realize until we reach the very beginning of the New Testament is that God, in promising a Savior, someone who could come and remove the consequences of our sin and allow us to be in relationship with him, in promising all of this, he was promising himself. In the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, deity and humanity perfectly fuse, which is why one of the titles given to Jesus at his birth is the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it is Jesus, our Emmanuel, it is he and only he who can open the door to salvation, who through his suffering on the cross removes the punishment that I and we deserve. And the consequence of our sin is ultimately death and judgment that through Jesus' sinless life, and his sacrificial death for us, those of us who personally believe in him and put our faith and seek to follow him, his work on the cross and his rising again crushes that power. Crushes the power of sin and death and the devil. Have a look at verse 14 and 15. We read these words. Since the children of flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. God's word teaches us that sin and then death was brought in through our own want for power displayed in the book of Genesis and a mindset which believes that we don't need God and I don't want God. Adam and Eve were tempted by an enemy introduced to us in the Bible as the serpent and as we learn through the scriptures he has the title Satan. And Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent to take hold of something more and their desire for more than what God had already given them was too great and in so doing they rejected God. Their very own creator who had given them everything. They displayed a lack of trust in God and decided they wanted to rule their own lives. And I'm sure for many of us that's our experience on a daily basis. Wanting to rule our own lives. Because we think if we're in control, we'll get everything sorted. Through their rejection of God, Adam and Eve, God's wonderful creation was exposed to the terrible reality of death. And we see it all around us, don't we? We've seen it Monday just gone. 
sure many of us were watching the funeral of, of our late majesty. All of us, all of creation, all of the world is prone to decay and prone to death. And, and death just seems wrong to us, doesn't it? I think we all feel it. It just feels wrong. And I think that's a biblical thing. Because death as we know it today was never intended in God's creation. That was brought in by our mistake. Yet, though Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they were preparing to leave the garden, and they were preparing to part from God's presence, they were given a promise that someone would come one day to crush the serpent and to crush his work. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 3. God speaking. And he says to the serpent directly, this person that I will send will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All of God's story, all of the scripture reveals to us, is, lead us, is leading us up to this moment where our three enemies as humanity of sin and of death and of Satan, the whole of the story is leading us up to a moment where someone is sent to crush these enemies and eradicate them from the reality of human life. But as that person does this, they will suffer in the process. And into this story enters God's Son, Jesus Christ. A man who looked like a normal man, who was a carpenter for much of his life, but revealed himself to be through his life and his words and his actions, God in flesh. Here's what it says in John chapter 1. He was in the world, this is Jesus speaking of, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then verse 14 there. The word God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus the word was God in flesh, identifying with us his own creation. He was sent with this task of destroying the very thing that marks each of us in this room, the great leveler as it is called, death itself, and secure for us salvation through suffering. You note verse 10 up there on the screen. Jesus was made the perfect pioneer of salvation through his suffering. This does not mean that Jesus was at some point morally imperfect. The idea of perfection here in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 is that in the Greek language, Hebrew, which Hebrews would have been written in, perfection talks of completion. So what it says in verse 10 in Hebrews chapter 2 is that Jesus specifically completed the course. He completed the race. So verse 10 is saying that Jesus destroyed death and accomplished for us salvation in full obedience to his mission. Through his suffering and death on the, cross, on the cross, he completed the course. How do we know that? What were the last words Jesus spoke on the cross before he gave up his life? It was the phrase, tetelestai. It is finished. Or another translation will put it, paid in full. It is finished. And Jesus gave up his life. He had finished the race. He had completed his course of conquering sin and death. And the proof that Jesus had truly conquered sin and death 
was that three days later he walked out of a tomb. Sin was dealt with and death defeated. The scripture says death could not keep a hold of him. He walked out of the tomb. What our passage is saying is that Jesus is therefore the champion of our faith. The one to taste death and return never to die again and allow those of us who put our faith in him and give our lives to him a secure hope that death is not the end and that we have no need to fear it or to be paralyzed in fear by it because of our trust in him. Salvation has been secured by Jesus Christ. Jesus can liberate you and he can liberate me from the power of sin and death. And so when we physically die, we can be with him for eternity. And you can today, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, can experience this freedom. You can experience this liberation of all of your sins forgiven and a secure hope of eternal life with God. And my simple question to you this morning is, have you taken hold of what Jesus offers you today? Have you taken hold of what Jesus offers you today? Jesus is our liberator. If you're a Christian this morning, you know all this, I'm sure. Are you and am I living in the light of that freedom from sin? Are we free from the fear of death? Is that our reality? I've spoken already about identity. As Christians, we often think of ourselves as filthy sinners. Actually, the Bible says that if you're in Christ, the truth is that we're saints who sometimes sin. And we struggle to say that, but it is the truth. And that truth is so powerful because quite often we live our lives going through the motions of, I'm just a worthless sinner. But in Christ, your identity has changed. In the book of 1 Corinthians, it says you are a new creation. You're not a sinner. You're a saint who sometimes sins and struggles with sin. Our identity is that of saints. We're holy people. We're set apart for God in this world. We're empowered by his Holy Spirit. And we're given all we need to live a holy life. And seeing ourselves as what we are, saints, can often help us rethink about our lives more healthily. Your identity is changed if you're in Christ. You are his, and, and sin does not reign over you anymore. Of course we still battle sin. Of course we get it wrong. Of course we slip up. But we have what Jesus calls the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit to help us in these battles with temptations. And we're going to come back to that a little later. But we so often take hold of our old identity when we live through the week. We take hold of what we were and not what we are. And we forget that we are now children of God. Holy people set apart for God. That is who you are. And no one can take that identity from you. Secondly, we learn that Jesus refers to his followers as brothers and sisters. Let's read again verses 10 to 13. It'll be up again on the screen. Verses 10 to 13. And note how many family-type references are made here. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children of God 
has given me. Jesus, amazingly, through his work on the cross, through his resurrection, and through our belief in him, brings us into the family of God. Each of us in life, whether we admit it or not, is seeking a place of loving community, a place to belong, a place to feel safe, a place to feel secure, a place to feel accepted, a family through which they can find acceptance and love. We, if we're in Christ and following him, we are given a place in God's house at God's table. At God's house in go- at God's table. If you're in Christ, you are a son or a daughter of God. That is your identity. You are a son and daughter of God first, before anything else. Now, I just want to mention here, in some of the translations of verse 10, it would just mention sons. Ladies, do not be alarmed. What needs to be understood here is that the writer is communicating with the people who were predominantly a Jewish background. And in a Jewish culture, it was only sons, or the firstborn normally, sons that inherited the wealth and the estate uh, from their parents, from their family. So what this verse means when it refers to sons is all who have trusted in Christ. So we should read it as, if you're in Christ, whether male or female, you are a child of God. And because of this blessed position that you're in, you inherit all of God's promises and all of God's blessings. Probably worth a smile, isn't it? (laughs) Do you know what's amazing? Jesus is not ashamed, it says in verse 11, to call us brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call you and me family. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's proud to be associated with you. He's proud. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 says this. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. We through Jesus Christ, we the church are God's house, we're God's abode. And the writer to illustrate this quotes them from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 in the Old Testament. If you're one of Jesus' followers, Jesus, according to, your, to our passage this morning, is your brother. Jesus is your big brother. And amazingly, and in some unfathomable truth that we struggle to grasp or imagine, we get to join and share in Jesus' inheritance. The Son's inheritance. That is breathtaking. What does this mean for us today if we're followers of Jesus? Well, again I ask the question, are we living in the light of this truth that Jesus has brought us into God's family? That we're sons, of God, uh, sons and daughters of God, that is our identity. But one of the things I was thinking about this week was one of the most destructive weapons that the devil wheels against, wheels against us who follow Jesus is that he makes us doubt who God says we are. We so often forget or neglect the truth of who we are our identity and, and our, we believe these lies about ourselves. Lies that weaken us and stunt our spiritual growth and, and cause us to walk less confidently and less boldly. Lies that make us doubt our position before God or his love for us. Or that he even likes us. 
It's the devil's most destructive weapon. We believe these destructive thoughts that we're worthless or inadequate or useless or stupid, not good for anything. Everyone else is better than me, more talented, more gifted. I have no purpose. And we see ourselves as dirty or unloved and we spiral into this negative mindset of ourselves that is unbiblical. And it eventually becomes the lens by which we see ourselves and we see the world and even as we see God. We lose this sense of who we really are, who God says we are if we've trusted in Christ. You are his child. And yet sometimes circumstances come and they arise which cause us to question or to doubt God's love for us or to take hold of guilt or shame or lies that we're worthless and that we're useless. And I speak honestly here, that was my experience 18 months ago. Where the lies that I believed about myself became so destructive that for three to four months I couldn't do anything. As many of you know, <coughs> I knew I should have got a tissue. I was going to do that. As many of you know, I was competing a master's at the time and I had to stop. And I couldn't concentrate anymore because my thoughts about myself were getting darker and darker. And I realized that for most of my life, I'd always believed that I wasn't good for anything. That I was useless and that I was worthless. And circumstances that allow me to suppress those lies, but they were always there forming how I saw myself and how I saw my life. And though I carried this appearance of confidence, quite a confident person, though I carried this appearance of confidence and being laid back and nothing phases me, in reality, I was broken. And I was troubled and I was struggling. And I would wake up but not want to leave my room. And I struggled to see people. And I couldn't even swallow food. And I was losing weight and I couldn't sleep. And I couldn't work and I couldn't study. And it was at times overwhelming to the point where the thought became darker and darker and darker. And I had various medication and spiritual counseling at the time, some of which I'm still receiving. But I realized for me, this wasn't just a mental issue or stress, which are valid things. This was a spiritual issue. And I sat down with a number of Christian mentors, including Andy, who helped me to see that actually for a lot of my life I believed this lie, that wasn't good for nothing. That I had these abilities, yes, but I just felt deeply, deeply useless. Worthless. And what I'd done was believe lies. And I had forgotten or neglected the truth of who God says I am. That I am significant was made for a purpose, that I am secure in his hands, that God does accept me as his child and he loves me with a passion. I had known those things, I had taught those things, but somewhere along the way I neglected those things and I had not allowed those truths to penetrate into every crevice of my life and I would put on these unbiblical lenses, not allowing the truth to truly set me free. I'd forgotten my identity. Now, 
Praise God. I'm in a place where I can say that I'm walking in the truth of who God is, who God says I am. Knowing and believing the truth really does set you free. I'm not sharing this as an illustration or look at me, I've got this all sorted. Believe me. No idea. But I'm sharing this as an encouragement and as a testimony as to what, when we really believe the truth of what the gospel is, what the gospel does, and what God, God does through the gospel in giving us everything, and that giving us what every human wants, acceptance, significance, and security. If you're in Christ this morning, you're accepted. You're not rejected, you're not unloved, nor dirty. You're accepted. If you take anything away from my message this morning, take that with you. You're accepted. Take a look at these verses. Paul put them up on the screen for us. Let just God's word and the promises of it wash over you. This is your identity. We're children then we're heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then First Peter chapter 1. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And has given you an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in there. <coughs> Thank you, Alan. You're a star. <clears throat> this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Your identity <clears throat> is a son and daughter of God. That's the lens by which we must see the world. And if you're a Christian this morning, I ask simply, are there lies you're believing about yourself? Are there negative attitudes or behaviors which indicate that there are aspects of the gospel <clears throat> that we have still not grasped. Are we living in the light and the truth of our identity in Jesus Christ? Finally then, let's turn on to our third point from our passage this morning. Jesus is fully human and is our merciful and sympathetic high priest. Why is this important? Why would this be an encouragement to us today? Well, to liberate us as humanity from our enemies, from our three enemies, sin, death, and Satan, Jesus had to identify with us in every way. And so Jesus, God the Son, became human. And we struggle to grasp this, that God became flesh, but he did. Jesus became a baby, became dependent on his parents. Jesus had to do this. Jesus had to become a human to accomplish for a salvation because death was required. Death was required because the consequences of sin is death. And to die, God the Son, Jesus had to become a human. Have a look at verse 14 to 18 up here on the screen. These verses declare to us that God the Son had to become a human. Jesus, who we have already seen from Hebrews chapter 1, is superior to the angels of heaven. He chose to step down, to humble himself, and take on flesh and die so that we might be free from sin and death. 
We see in Jesus Christ God's great glory and great humility. Jesus' humanity also then qualifies him to be a sacrifice for us as human beings and to allow him who had committed no sin to be yours and my sacrifice and be punished for our wrongs that we have done. Christ's death, says verse 14, undoes the work of Satan and removes the bite or the sting of death. On Monday, I thought it was wonderful that during the Queen's funeral, these words were read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55 to 57. O death is your victory. Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. I was reading this week, Jesus has stormed the gates of the enemy, laid hold of his stronghold, opened wide the doors of captivity, and pointed us to the path to freedom. All we have to simply do is take a hold of him. Through Jesus' sinful life, he could take our sin, yours and mine, as a substitute, and he could make atonement for them, as it says in verse 17 of our passage. Atonement simply means to cover them over. So Christ on the cross takes our sins, is punished in our place, and atones or covers over our sin. First Peter chapter 1 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might, be, might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, by his sufferings, we have been healed. So Jesus has atoned or covered over our sins, and that links with his role as a high priest, because in the Old Testament, the Jews had a priesthood, which would, uh, their, the, the priesthood was there to make atonement for the people, to cover over the sins of the people. So God always said, that these sacrifices that this priesthood was offering back in the Old Testament, they were always pictures. They were always pictures pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice which was to come, linking with the person who was promised to come and crush the head of Satan. Jesus is the fulfillment of this person and the sacrifice. In his sinless life and his sacrificial death, Jesus crushes the work of the devil, covers over our sin, and gives us new life, eternal life with Christ, which means death holds no power over us, and it has no sting anymore. Jesus, in his sacrifice, then fulfills the role of a high priest because it was the high priest who, in the Old Testament, would enter the temple once a year and make atonement, make cover for the, for the people's sins. He would represent the people to God, and he would cover the sins of the nation. And for Jesus to offer the ultimate sacrifice for sin, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world, all of the nations, he needed to be human. He needed to identify with us in humanity and represent humanity to God the Father. Jesus occupies the role of high priest and the sinless and spotless sacrifice being offered for our sins to be atoned for. The Hebrew writer then gives a practical ramification. As a high priest who suffered, Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with your sufferings. Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with your sufferings. In verse 10 and 18, we have mentions of Jesus' sufferings, and they're up on the screen now. Now, these mentions of sufferings not only refer to Jesus' death, but also to his life. As a human being, when he walked the dusty roads of Israel, the sufferings of temptation, Jesus grew up experiencing all of the same sinful temptations we experience. The desire for power and dominion, the desire to use his divine power for selfish ambition, the desire for sex and money would have been ever plain to the Lord Jesus as he walked around Israel. 
The desire to depart from what the Father had tasked him to achieve. The desire to escape God's or the Father's will. We know that from the Gospels that the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness. When Jesus is at his physically at his weakest. And then the verses imply that he returns constantly to keep tempting Jesus to turn away, turn away, turn away. We even know that from the Gospels that the devil even sought to use his disciples to keep Jesus from accomplishing his mission. What does Jesus say to Peter? When Peter's saying, no Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Seems very strong. But Jesus recognized that it was the tempter, it was the accuser, seeking to try and divert Jesus away from the cross and to another path. Throughout his life, Jesus Christ would have felt, and more so, would have felt temptation more than we ever did, more than we ever do. Jesus would have encountered every temptation we come across and more in his earthly life. He would have had Satan himself consistently seeking to divert uh, divert him from the will of the Father. Jesus understands your pains and your temptations and your struggles. He understands the weakness and the temptation more than we'll ever know. And I'm pinching a a verse from later on in our book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. He experienced the full range of human temptation, and he conquered them. And through his sinless life, he was able to come and atone for our sins and allow us to be forgiven and set free. And what this means is that Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our brother, and our high priest, completely understands the difficulties that you've struggled with this week. Completely understands them. No matter your age. Jesus was a teenager once. Don't think Jesus didn't have the same temptations and difficulties that a a teenager would have had. No matter your age, Jesus understands. He is the greatest person that we can share our struggles and difficulties with because he gets it. You know when you have have a problem and you you chat to someone and and they try to empathize with you but, but they can't because they've not been through the same thing as you and then you find someone who understands and has been through something that you've been through, and, and you can sit with them, and you can be yourself with them, and say, oh, yes, you get it, you understand. For that is what Jesus is and should be for us. Every one of us, Jesus, when it comes to temptation, he gets it. He gets the struggle and the battle for our mind, what we think about. He gets the struggle and the battle for our eyes, what we look at. He gets the battle and the struggle for our hands, what we touch and what we do. And he gets the struggle and the battle for our feet, where we go. He gets it all. And so as I finish, let's reflect. We've seen this morning that Jesus is our saviour. He's our liberator and he's our brother who invites us into God's family. And he's our sinless human high priest. Our sympathetic all of these things touch on something that I've mentioned already, and that word is identity. That's Jesus' identity. Specifically, specifically, we've seen who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But we've also seen the amazing position he has placed us in as his followers. Our identity this morning is one of a free people. You are a holy child of God if you've trusted in Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when we slip, we have a faithful high priest who is next to us and has sympathy and lifts us up and keeps us going. So my first question this morning is this. Have you personally accepted him? Have you given your life to him? Have you accepted the forgiveness that he offers? Are you living, as we sang earlier on, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, we sang it earlier, are you living as the conqueror you are in Christ? We are more than conquerors through Christ. Often we don't feel like conquerors, but our identity says that we are, and so we should live like it. Have you taken hold of the truth of who God says you are? Have you let go of the shame and the guilt that the devil so often entangles us in? When Jesus says, you are free, you are mine, you're a child of God, that's your identity. Are we seeking to try and live as holy people, set apart for God? And when we fall as Christians into sin or difficulty, that we turn to the one who understood all the temptations and overcome them. And we confess to him and say, Lord, I've fallen. But thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help me to overcome this sin in my life. Are there habits of sin in your life that you're struggling to break? Have you confessed them to the Lord? Have you given time to thinking through them with him? If you're a Christian this morning, you can say with full assurance and confidence that you, your name is written on God's hand and written on his heart. Jesus is proud to be associated with you. God loves you with a passion. So often we forget that as Christians. We forget who we are. Let's be people who know we are. We're God's children. Loved by him with a passion. Let me just pray. And then we're going to take communion. Father, help us. When we so often take our eyes off you and, and place our, our desires on things that are not of you or, or, or we take hold of guilt and shame that, that we have no right to take because you've taken it, Lord Jesus. You took it on the cross. And we so often forget that we are part of your family called to be holy people. We forget who we are. Lord Jesus, help us to remember who we are. Fill us with your spirit to be people who know complete significance, complete acceptance, and complete security in our Lord and King and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for bringing us God's word. Thank you for explaining. Thank you for your honesty. And, and I'm sure um, there will be people who can...